Welcome to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, a deep dive into biblical leadership with pastor and author, Dr. Gerald Brooks. Hi, this is Pastor Gerald Brooks. Thank you for uh, joining me for another podcast today. Before we get into the lesson, I want to take a moment and uh, let you know about a opportunity for you. Uh, Every year I produce a flash drive and that flash drive is just to assist uh, people as they try to communicate and on that flash drive uh, there are 40 plus uh, lessons that uh, I have communicated over the last year. Um, I want to encourage you that uh, that could be a resource for some of you that are actively communicating on a regular basis because it's resources. The interesting thing about pastors is is that uh, for the majority of pastors, uh, writing is the most challenging aspect of their job, uh, creating content, coming up with content. And this flash drive has everything that I did for the past year on it, and then in October we'll be putting out a new one. But the one that's available right now, it has a series of messages that I think uh, really provide an opportunity uh, for reaching unreached people because uh, there's a series in there where we talk about uh, life, death, heaven, and hell. And uh, we just go through questions about it. And literally, I know of organizations that have taken those particular messages and have used those messages. And it has been a platform to really help them reach people. So I want to say to you that uh, the flash drive is available. Uh, You can uh, go online and uh, get it at CherylBrooksMinistries.com. If I did it on a Sunday morning, uh, the outlines are all also available. So it's just a tool to help uh, you be able to facilitate information. And so I just want to encourage you, if you go to GeraldBrooksMinistries.com, that would be something that you would be able to find. Uh, Today I want to talk to you about survival skills for leaders. Survival skills for leaders. On Monday of this week, I was talking to a young man who is an emerging leader. Now, he's already leading, but he's going to be the dominant leader in a particular organization that is well-known and well-respected and well-thought-of. And he's sort of in that uh, second seat right now, but he will eventually be moving to the first seat. As I was talking to them, uh, this idea came up. And the reason it came up was I was looking at this young man who is very talented, very gifted, uh, very sharp, is a um, ferocious learner. Uh, And I was thinking to myself, I've done this twice as long as him. So I've done this for 41 years, and uh, he's been doing it somewhere around 20 years. Uh, And I was just thinking, uh, what is the difference between 20 years and 40 years? And then it hit me. It's survival. See, some people think that what gets you the distance is success. But to be honest with you, uh, it is survival. Do you have the ability to survive the ups and downs and the wears and tears of what you do? And can you do it uh, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decade after decade? 
Now, this young man is uh, a very good young man. In fact, he reminds me a lot of Jesse Prince, who is on my team and is in the second seat, but one day he will be in the uh, first seat. Uh, and both of these young men are talented, gifted, smart, brilliant, and uh, I'm just so uh, proud of Jesse, and I think I'm going to be really, really proud of this other young man also as he uh, ventures into the next stage of his journey. But as I was looking at him, I was thinking, if you're going to last, then you're going to have to survive. And what do the survival skills of a leader who is the frontline leader look like? So that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to give you some thoughts on survival. What are the survival skills for long-term leadership? I want to give you several of them. The first one is this. uh, You have to have a faith which anchors you. You have to have a faith which anchors you. Uh, If I were to take you back some 36 years, you would find that uh, the ministry that I'm ahead of was just beginning. Uh, We had quickly evolved from a daycare center, and now we're in our first rented facility. It's not much. We have an auditorium. We have a place for preschool. We have a place for uh, nursery and children's. There are no offices. There's nothing else. That's all we have. Now, uh, Everything seems to be going well, but as we begin this particular ministry, I'm going to find out that uh, my wife is pregnant. Now, uh, this pregnancy was going to be something that uh, we felt like would go normal, and it did right up until the very, very end. And I don't have time to elaborate that story, but I'm starting a church. I'm developing a church. Everything is in survival mode as we're beginning that church. And lo and behold, uh, Jenny is with child. She's going to end up having an emergency C-section. We're going to find out that our child needs open-heart surgery. So I want to tell you that literally every bit of air has been knocked out of me. Uh, first of all, because I'm seeing my wife who's in pain. Second of all, because I now have a daughter who's going to need open heart surgery. I'm in the middle of being the Alpha and Omega when you start the church. Uh, you have people who want to help, but a lot of the stuff just falls on you. You're the one who turns on the lights. You're the one who turns off the lights. And I, I just remembered that overwhelming moment. I remember walking out. At that time, we still did Sunday evening services. And I remember walking out, and as I walked Walked out, I literally looked up to the heavens. It was sort of that moment where Abraham looked up and God said, I want you to uh, try to number the stars. I want you to look at the sand. But this was a little bit different. This was desperation for me. And uh, I was just thinking, it seems like my family's in trouble. It seems like uh, my child's health is in trouble. My wife's not feeling well. I've got all these new responsibilities. Everything is impacting me. Everything is coming upon me. And then I said something. I went to the book of Job and I said, yea, though you slay me, I will still trust you. Now, it's not a verse that's used a whole lot in faith, but it's one that has secured me because I get what Job said. So many things were going wrong that the only way that many things could go wrong was it looked like God was against them. It looked like God was uh, actively uh, going against him. And at that particular moment, I remember looking up towards heaven and I said, uh, Yea, though you slay me, I will still trust you. 
And it was my statement of having faith that was anchored. I said, God, I don't understand everything that's going on. I don't understand how I could start something and feel like this was the will of God. I can't understand all the nuances of what we've had to do and the things that we're still being asked to do. And yet in the midst of that, that my wife uh, has had major surgery. In the midst of that, now I'm being told that my daughter will have major surgery. And it looks like the only way that life could get this way is that you literally, literally have forsaken me. But it was my faith that said, God, I don't care. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it seems like. Yea, though you slay me, I will still trust you. I said, God, faith is what I'm going to have. I'm going to be a person of faith. I may not be able to explain everything. I may not be able to answer every question. My life may not be reflective of every promise that I wished uh, it was true in my life, but I am going to trust you. And for me, that was a defining moment because I said nothing will ever change my faith in God. Even when it looks like God doesn't care and it feels like God isn't interested and it feels like God has turned his back. Now, I didn't say that God didn't care and that God wasn't interested or God uh, had turned his back. I'm saying there are times in life when it feels that way. And if you're going to survive, you are going to have to understand that you have to have a faith that anchors you. Second thing, you're going to have to have relationships which secure you. Relationships which secure you. It doesn't take a whole lot of exegetical skill to figure out that God never intended that anyone do anything for him alone. Whether we want to go back and see Jesus literally sending out the disciples uh, in pairs because he knew that it was the best way to do ministry. But in your life and my life, um, having relationships is key. But defining what those relationships are is also key. See, I know a lot of people, and a lot of people know me. But in my life, there has to be a couple of relationships that really, really are the key dominating relationships in my life. So um, when I talk about relationships, let me put it to you this way. Let me give you this illustration. Uh, The Navy SEALs, uh, when they parachute in or they go into an area, they are taught to ask three questions. Number one, where am I? I know I was trying to land here when we jumped out of the plane, but am I in the right place? Where am I? Number two, where is my buddy? See, Navy SEALs always operate in units, and so their second question is, where's your buddy? And then the third question is, where's the enemy? But it's those first two questions that I think are important to all of us. First of all, where am I? Am I where God wants me to be? But secondly, where's my buddy? Where's the person who has my back? In my life, I have a couple of relationships where I know that people would fight for me. I know that people would do anything for me to help me. I know that people would do anything for me to assist me. And there's a couple of relationships where I know that if I got in extreme trouble, these individuals would drop everything. They would drop everything. And if I can put it to you this way, um, many years back, um, I 
walk my sister through when she had stage four colon cancer that I was going to be the individual that would be with her when she took her last breath. I can remember on a Saturday night having done the Saturday service and having gone over to her home and literally held her hand and prayed with her when she closed her eyes and she went home to be with Jesus. What I want to tell you is is that I didn't realize at that moment, but that was going to be one of the most uh, dramatic moments in my life because of the amount of energy I had given because of uh, how important she was to me and uh, just the whole nuance of family. But that being said, uh, what was going to happen was um, I was going to go through such an overwhelming stress-filled period that I found it hard to be able to do some everyday things. But I had a couple of people who really stepped up and helped me. First of all was my wife, who has always been there. But immediately she called a couple of key friends, and she said, Gerald needs your help. It was amazing. There wasn't discussion. There wasn't, our schedule doesn't work. They were here. And what I want to say to you is that um, it's not the multitude of relationships that help you survive. It's the couple of relationships. And whatever that looks like, you need to make sure that you have those. Number three, emotional equilibrium. Emotional equilibrium, that stabilizes you. You have to be able to emotionally have sort of that ability to stay uh, steadfast when all of a sudden every gauge in your life seems to be redlining. And emotional equilibrium is something that everyone needs. Uh, I was just reading a story about Abraham Lincoln, and it was a story that just amazed me. He has become president. Many of the states have succeeded. The Civil War has started. It's not going well. He is appointed a general, a General McQuellen, and this general just wanted the perfect everything before he would do anything, and he would not take his army out of the garrison. They literally stayed in the fort. And Lincoln knows that there's a time-sensitive issue here. And that time-sensitive issue is just simply this, that uh, they've got to attack. They've got to get off the base, and they've got to move forward. McQuellen won't do it. And so one evening, Lincoln goes to McQuellen's house. McQuellen walks in and sees him, doesn't say anything, walks upstairs. Lincoln's thinking he's going to walk upstairs and come down, but 30 minutes later, he doesn't come down. He sends his aide up saying that the president needs to see you. The aide comes down saying uh, McQuellen's uh, servant has said that he's already gone to bed. Here was the president of the United States going over to the general's house. The general doesn't acknowledge him. The general knows that he's there. He walks all the way up to his bedroom. He goes to sleep knowing that the president's waiting to talk to him. And then in the midst of everything, Lincoln is going to find out that he goes to bed. The person who was with Lincoln was just furious. You have so disrespected. But Lincoln literally gets up and he walks back to the White House. When he walks back to the White House, the aide says, are you going to fire him or are you going to do this? He's, he's done the ultimate affront to you. 
And Lincoln just looks at him and he says, right now, the issues are so big that I do not have time to pay attention to personal struggles and personal put-downs. If I use all my emotional energy up on that, I will not have the emotional energy to be able to lead this country and lead this nation. I thought, wow, what an amazing story. Here's a guy who has literally been showed up, and he has the highest position in our land, and yet he sees what's at stake, and he knows he can spend uh, his emotional energy on reacting to the personal put-down, or he can use his emotional energy to solve a greater problem. I'd like to tell you that I've always been the person who's always seen the greater problem and didn't respond to the personal put-down, but I have to tell you, it's a learned skill. And even now, after 41 years, I'm learning how to ignore certain things. When I feel like people are neglecting and maybe not uh, doing things that they're supposed to and they're ignoring, and some of those personal kind of affronts. But what I know is, is that leaders who survive, they develop emotional equilibrium. They know what to react to. They know what not to react to. They know when to react. They know when not to react. And if you are going to survive, you're going to have to have emotional equilibrium. Number four, you need rituals which ground you. Rituals which ground you. You know, one of the interesting things uh, about uh, good families is this, is that good families build rituals into their household. They build uh, rituals into what they do. And what is found when psychologists go back and interview the kids, uh, it's these rituals that they remember. So the ritual may be that uh, we do Christmas a certain way, that we do it on Christmas Eve, we do it on Christmas Day, we always met at this house, we always met at that house, Thanksgiving was always this, and it was the rituals And one of the things that they say is that uh, the repetitive cycles give us security. The repetitive cycles uh, just give us security. So one of the things that I've had to learn is that personally I've had to build rituals into my life. Things that I do repetitively. Not that I do them mindlessly, but that I know the repetitiveness of those things helps me. And then in my marriage, I've had to learn that there's rituals. And then in my family, I've had to create rituals. And then on the other hand, in my congregation, I've had to create rituals. And it's not so much that you want to love the ritual, but rituals do create security. You know what's going to happen. You know what you're going to do, and it creates a breathable moment. So rituals which ground. And they say that memories, good memories, are formed out of repetition. So my kids grew up knowing that Christmas was going to be this. Uh, My grandkids are growing up knowing that Christmas is going to be this. Well, all of those form memories. And they're the memories that, oh, you know what? Granddad always did this. Well, Grandma always did this. Or Dad always did. And it's the moments you laugh over. But the reason you laugh over them is you're secure in them. Number five, game plan regularly. Because game planning prepares you. I tell people that um, your first child has the legal right to sue every parent. And the reason being is everyone was a perfect parent And then they had their first child. 
And all of those theories, all of those things where we looked at other couples and we said, we'll never uh, do this to our kids, we'll never let our kids do that, we try to implement those on our first kid. And so with your first kid, you want to do everything right. But then you have your second kid, and the goal changes. It's not that you, you want everything done right. You just want them to be nice to each other. So you go from first kid, you've got to do everything right, to your second kid, you've got to uh, be nice to each other, to your third kid, you just want everyone to be quiet. And so the goals of parenting change as you have more kids, and some of you will get that if you have a lot of kids in your life. But that being said, game planning. When I got to my third kid, I realized that I needed to game plan. I realized that uh, this child needed to think about decisions before he was faced with decisions. So I'd literally sit in the car and I'd say, okay, if this happens, what are you going to do? Well, if this occurs, what are you going to do? Well, what if this happens? What if there's a driver driving on the wrong side of the road? What are you going to do? Well, what if you get lost? What are you going to do? Well, what if someone does this? What are you going to do? And you know what I found out? I found out that you can't game plan for everything, but if you do game plan, you're prepared for most things. And I found especially uh, the later I was in parenting that game planning was one of the key things that I did. I talked to my girls. Well, if you're out and you're with some friends and this happens, what do you do? Well, if some people say they want to do this, what do you do? And I always game plan because here's what I know. Most people aren't good at making decisions that they haven't thought about. And sometimes, especially when it comes to moments that are time sensitive, you don't have a whole lot of minutes to make that decision. So that being said, I've learned that game planning prepares you. And I've learned to ask myself the what if. If I'm on this plane and this happens, what if? Well, if I'm driving and this happens, what if? Well, if this happens in a church service, what if? What if? And so as I began to uh, just game plan, it always prepared me, and it's been a skill that I've always used to prepare others. Number six, vault, V-A-U-L-T, vault, experiences, and this creates wisdom for you. One of the things that I've learned to do is that every time I hear a story, every time I read a story, I vault it. That means I put it someplace in the back of my head, in the back of notes, in the back of albums of stories that I've had, I vault it. Why? Because if I read a story about Lincoln with his general, and all of a sudden someone personally uh, sort of causes an affront for me, and yet I'm in the middle of something very, very important, that story is going to be something that's going to feed me wisdom. Well, this is how you, ha- you handle it. Uh, Mayor Giuliani on September 11th, he said the days before that, he happened to be reading uh, the book by Churchill, Uh, as Churchill was handling the fact that missiles uh, were being shot from Germany into uh, London. And he said it was that book that gave him the game plan 
and the wisdom to handle September 11th in New York City. Well, if you don't vault experiences, yours and others, then every moment of wisdom has to start from literally nothing. And I found that if I vault everyone else's experiences and say, well, this is what this person did there, and I make sure that if I mentally can secure it or in paper or on my iPad can secure it, when I have to make a decision, I go back to those stories. And so I find out that it helps me stay on track. Number seven, reflection, which grows you. I've done a lot of teaching on this because the Bible uses the word Selah and it's like a pause. It's like, hey, I need you to breathe. It's like the fulfillment of that verse, be still and know that he is God. Just be still, just calm down. Uh, I remember uh, years ago reading uh, an interview in the Harvard Business Review, and it was a psychologist that had specialized in being a psychologist to successful CEOs, and he had personally counseled with over 1,500 of them. In this interview, he was being asked a whole lot of psychological questions, but at the end, it was like the reporter just sort of looked at him and said, hey, I just want to ask you a simple question. What's the difference between a good leader and a bad leader? And the guy looked at him and he said, that's simple. One word, reflection. He says, good leaders reflect. Bad leaders don't. See, every leader has to make decisions. But there comes a time when you make that decision that sometimes you need to take a few moments afterwards and you need to reflect and say, okay, in making that decision, uh, what were the ramifications of it? Did it have unintended consequences? Did. And so what the counselor said is reflection helps you learn from what you've already done. And he said leaders that will learn from what they've already done are the leaders that keep leading well into the future. Reflection is one of those things that I think is so needed in uh, leadership because it gives us a chance, one, to breathe, two, to be still, but three, to learn, and to learn so that we figure out what we did that was right and we keep doing it and what we did that was wrong and we never do it again. So reflection. And then eight, this is going to be sort of out of the box, uh, find a song and sing it. When you go to the book of Job, it talks about creation, and it talks about how during creation the morning stars were singing. You go over to Isaiah, and it says in there, Sing, O barren. We go to Paul in Acts chapter 16, and he's in crisis as he's been thrown in jail, and it says he prayed and he sang. We go over to Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament when uh, a lot of armies, five, are coming at him. And what does he do? He goes to the choir and they find a song. You know what I found is life always creates background music for us. And you, if you're not careful, will let that background music sustain you. And when I say that, here's what I want you to know. The background music this world gives us will always have us singing the blues. You need to find a song that's your song, and it's what you sing that keeps you going in the midst of crisis. Survival Skills for Leaders, 
You have to have a faith that anchors you, relationships that secure you, emotional equilibrium which stabilizes you, rituals which ground you, a game plan regularly which prepares you, fault experiences which creates wisdom for you, reflection that grows you, and find a song that inspires you. Just some simple thoughts. And it doesn't sound complex, but I do believe it's the difference between making it 20 years in ministry and making it over four. So I want to encourage you. Again, at the beginning of this, I mentioned the uh, flash drive that's available. I also have a book called The Snapshots of Faith. The Snapshots of Faith, I think, is a wonderful book because it deals with the three dimensions of faith. It it, it deals with uh, triumphant faith. It deals with transformational faith and it deals with transcending faith and what I find is is that most of the time that faith is taught it's taught in one dimension but God uses faith in three dimensions and if you don't have 3d faith you're probably not going to survive I want to encourage you since faith is one of the anchors that maybe that book can help you and you can go to Gerald Brooks Ministries and get it thank you so much for taking time thank you for letting others know about this Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast. If you'd like more information on Dr. Brooks' books, audio, or speaking engagements, please go to geraldbrooksministries.com.